Hello and welcome to the latest series of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. At the time of recording, lockdown has been loosened, at least for now. So in this series, I'm delighted to say that we're back in our guests' places of work, albeit at an appropriate distance. Please don't adjust your sets, but in this episode, we're doing something a little different. Rather than talk about a particular material, I'm going to be discussing how to invent things with a very brilliant designer and artist, Dominic Wilcox. You know, at school, someone might say, oh, that, that drawing's not very good. People's answer as adults, when I say, are you creative? Oh, I'm not creative. And it's because someone told them the drawing was not very good at school. These sort of layers are covering our creativity. I first came across Dominic when he created the War Bowl in 2002, in which he melted down plastic toy soldiers from a particular battle and turned them into, well, a, a bowl. Since then, he's gone on to create a singular space in the design world with witty creations and drawings that are a sort of combination of David Strickley and Heath Robinson with a dash of Vic and Bob to boot. Thomas Heatherwick has described Wilcox's ideas as serious challenges to the real world to keep looking at itself with innocent eyes, wondering what else is possible. In Wilcox's hands, your shoes can tell you where to go. A crane comes out of a hat on top of your head and serves you breakfast, while your toothpaste dispenser is double-ended because, as he explains, if your partner squeezes the toothpaste from the top, don't get angry, simply use the other end. Oh, and there are art exhibitions designed specifically for dogs, too. But this isn't whimsy. There is a logic behind everything he does and a desire to turn the normal things around us into something a bit more interesting and surprising, to make life a little bit better. More recently, he's been turning his attention to schools through the Little Inventors Project, which encourages children to use their creativity and come up with new ideas of their own. This year, he will publish two books. Little Inventors Go Green is out now, while Little Inventors in Space is coming soon. Dominic, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. Great to invite you into my office studio. You have an office, which is great. I do, yeah. Yeah, well, in fact, I've got a studio as well. Yes, well, I was going to ask you about but that. Yes, it's a double. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two places of work. Can we talk a bit about your studio? I like to try and give uh, the listeners a sense of how and where it is you work. Yes. So we're cheating a little bit because we're in your office. Yeah. But let's talk about your studio. How does that look? Can you describe it for us? Yeah. Uh, well, it's um, rather higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think um, you know, my studio or desk looks a little bit like my mind in that it's a little bit messy, random things, you know, but that actually helps me make connections, you know, and uh, creativity is about making connections. So uh, that's my excuse for the mess on the, the thing. <laughs> my my studio is actually so messy, it's sometimes difficult to get into, and, which is why I like to come to the office here. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you don't share this space with anybody then, I take it? Uh, well, actually, a group of us of about five friends um, found this really big space and then we divided it up. So it's sort of partitioned off. And your office here, I mean, this is the Little Inventors office yeah. we're in, in uh, Dalston Junction. Yes. Can we just describe this very quickly? What have we got around? around us here because there's a, a kind of eclectic array of, of yeah. products and projects yeah there's uh it's a mixture of some of my work but also some of the little inventors work so so little inventors is about asking or challenging children to think up invention ideas could be bonkers or perfectly practical and then we take those ideas seriously and turn them into real things by working with local makers animators adults with skills to, re to really show them off. Mm. And there's a few 
examples of those uh, children's ideas made real. Well, I'm very keen to talk to you about that later, but before we get into the main body of the interview, there's something I do need to ask you. Did you ever hold the under-12s 800-metre record in Sunderland? <laughs> and did you run it in 2 minutes 17 seconds? Because I read this somewhere in an interview, and I think you're making it up. <laughs> My goodness, what research you do, Grant. <laughs> yes, and I, you know what? I might still hold it. That is incredible. So this is true? Yes. 2 minutes 17 actually is quite fast for an 11-year-old. Well, let me tell you, because the world record is 1 minute 40.91. So if you can find that extra, <laughs> have many, 37 seconds. That's not bad. That the title's not yours. Bad, but yes, I think I'm a little bit slower now. I wouldn't get my record back. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't playing with the journalists. You actually were a very good runner. Yes, sport was really big for my dad. And, uh, you know, I did judo from like six till ten. Then I got out of judo and then my dad took me down to Sunderland Harriers to get into athletics. And he volunteered himself and he became an athletics coach since then. So he, uh, he's been an athletics coach for about 30 years. So I... Um, I started then and uh, I, I competed, uh, you know, Northeast Championships and such like, yeah. There you go. I read this <laughs> and I thought you're just having a laugh with this. And I think it was an Italian journalist and I think you're just playing with her. That's funny, But Dad. no, no. <laughs> the podcast isn't about the virus, but we can't really avoid it. Um, what effect has it had on your your day-to-day -day working, your practice, Dominic? I've sort of lived a lockdown life to a degree in that, you know, I, I like working on my own a lot. I mean, my favourite place of work is on the sofa with a sketchbook or a laptop or an iPad or, a you know. So actually, I guess I'm one of the luckier ones in that my way of working hasn't been dramatically affected. Mm. I think one thing that probably changed is that the internet has become more of a, a place that you could show things or you will, you want to show things and people want to see more things on the internet and rather than in reality. But I did a lot of that anyway. I was going to say you're an early adopter, really. The blog, the Variations on Normal, was quite ahead of its time, I guess. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I, I, uh, I started this blog, Variations on Normal, that was 2009 about, yeah. That came out of total boredom in many ways. <laughs> I was drifting. Because my work is somewhere between art and design, but does it fit in art or is it in design? And I sort of drifted a little bit because of that. Like mm. I had no place for it. I actually moved to Berlin for three months and did a flat exchange. And I was just going to the park and I was bored and I was watching the punk rockers play frisbee and golf. And I thought, I really should do something. I so, love the idea of punk rockers playing golf. Is that a German thing? I don't know. But in <laughs> Berlin, it happens. They play golf in the park amongst the picnickers. And so I thought, I'm going to put some of my invention drawings, as they might describe, sort of... Uh, and uh, just put them online. And so I took about six weeks to come up with the name, Variations on Normal, <laughs> and then did it. And then I started to get a little bit of an audience because people started to comment underneath. And this gave me a little boost. So suddenly I'd sort of created my own gallery in a way, rather than looking for where I fitted in, I sort of created my own space. Yeah, I mean, can we talk about some of the things that you have created or ideas that you've had? Maybe if I just give you the kind of title or, or description, you can tell people what it is they actually are. So the football smoothie maker, Yeah. what is that? So the football smoothie maker is quite simply, it's a football with a zip in it and inside the ball is a waterproof bag. And so the idea is you put your fruit 
anything you'd make like a smoothie with fruit, mm. a bit of yogurt, um, then you zip it up and then you kick it around and play football with it for, well, it depends how long you, you want to do it. <laughs> I did it for about 30, uh, 30 minutes. And uh, and then you unzip it all and pour it, and it's a, it was a beautiful smoothie drink. Yeah, yeah. Was it any good as a football? It was heavy. It was. It didn't bounce as well as I thought. I suppose it depends what fruit you put in it as well, doesn't it? It's a, it well, well. <laughs> once it's in a football, you don't really. It doesn't really matter. No, true. Let's continue the reverse bungee jump. <laughs> the reverse bungee. That was one of my drawings that then got animated. It's basically the idea of instead of jumping off a building or a bridge. If you're standing just at the bottom and you throw a bit of land, like a bit of you know, like a ground with a tree maybe growing on a bungee cord, and that land is heading down towards you as you stand on the ground, it probably would give you the same feeling of uh, fear and anxiety. And so, uh, yes, it was just one of my little you know, ideas that I put out. You did an office desk come coffin. Yes. Again, it's a drawing and uh, interesting to talk about the difference between drawings and making objects. But this was, I guess it's a sort of social commentary on a lot of us spend a lot of time at the desk and we need to question that. We, we, we do question that. And so this was a desk that is in the shape of a coffin and the coffin opens up and you can use your laptop on it. It's got all of the paraphernalia. Um, but then you could use it as a coffin at the end of your life after you've worked very hard. So you work very hard and then you die. You work very hard, then you die. Kenneth Grange, he's done a, I think I'm right in saying, and people can write in and tell me if I'm wrong. There's a bookshelf in his house, full of books, obviously, but it's coffin shaped. And when he dies, that will be his coffin. They'll empty the books and he goes in there. So objectival, let's talk about objectival, GPS shoes. Yes, GPS shoes. They are shoes. They look for like very traditional male uh, brogue shoes, which were actually handmade, except these shoes actually point you in the direction of your destination. So you plot on a map on your mobile phone or computer where you want to go. You press upload to shoes. The shoes have got a GPS embedded in the heel. The left shoe, I think it is, has got a little circle of, you know, those perforations on brogues, mm. little circle with one LED that moves around and there's a little light in the middle. So that points a bit like a compass in the direction of your destination. And the other one has a little row of LEDs. That's like a progress bar. That tells you how close you're getting. Very good. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, this is a bit Nostradamus, this one, I think. Uh, the pre-handshake device. Yes, this is, um, well, to describe it, it's sort of like those scientific um, instruments where the, where the scientists put the hands in the gloves to touch uh, secret or dangerous stuff. And um, it's a Perspex box with two right-hand black rubber gloves pointing towards each other in the handshake position on a little stand. And really the idea was that when people have fallen out so much that they can't even bear to shake hands, this <laughs> gives them that little first step toward reconciliation to shake hands but not touch skin. Very good. Yeah. So where do all these ideas come from? <laughs> Are you literally walking about with these things popping into your head the whole time? No, I'm not. I mean, the subject of how do you find ideas, what is creativity, how do you be more creative, creative thinking, is the subject that I think about more than any, really, particularly now. But because that's what I do, I, that's all I know what to do um, is come up with ideas and how can I 
create a situation in my mind where the ideas flow easier and better. You know, it's a struggle, and it's a, but it's an interesting subject. What is creativity? How do you become more creative? Is it possible to become more creative? These questions uh, I'm thinking about. Is it? Is it what? More possible. Is it possible to, to, to become more creative? Well, I tell you my theory or belief on creativity is that we've all got it. You know, we've all been born with a creative mind in a way, you know, and um, what happens is over the years as we grow up from childhood, our creativity that's within us even now, it's with us all through life, gets covered over with layers of self-doubt or lack of practice in a way. You know, at school, someone might say, oh, that, that drawing's not very good. People's answer as adults, when I say, are you creative? Oh, I'm not creative. And it's because someone told them the drawing was not very good at school. These sort of layers are covering our creativity inside us. And so the key to becoming more creative isn't increasing creativity, it's to release it in a way and to take away those layers, to build a creative confidence back in ourselves. Interesting. I mean, when you are doing your drawings and you have a, a sketchbook in front of you, I know a lot of writers. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them. I'm not beaten over the head by the great novel I should be writing. I'm very happy just to be a very average journalist. But they talk about the fear of the blank page, you know, looking at starting or a blank screen and how to start. Do you get that when you're looking at your sketchbook, I wonder? Yes. I mean, only yesterday I was doing that thing. It'll been a little bit of time since I've felt I've been creative in a way, the act of coming up with new ideas. Mm. And so yesterday I got my sketchbook out, went to a blank sheet of paper and a pen. And um, what did I do? I just started doodling curves, shapes, marks. Then I drew a person. Then I drew a shape. And I started to fill this page with it's nonsense in a way. There's no big idea that I didn't come. But what, what normally happens is I'll do that for a number of pages. Maybe I'll write some words down on the subject I'm thinking of if I've been given a brief or if I'm thinking on an area, then I'll come back to it and I'll see a, a drawing of something silly or unusual. And I think, oh, wait a minute, if I change that bit or if I added that bit, and it starts to become a process of modification and altering and that sets, that sparks another thought in your mind. And so you fill the blank page with stuff and that stuff are like seeds mm. for the imagination to kickstart it. So you, so it's a, sort of like you've got to make an effort. It's, it's a real proactive activity, in my view, finding good ideas. I mean, doing these interviews, as you've noticed, I spend a certain amount of time researching my guests and immersing myself in their world and discovering their 800 metres time when they were 12. But with you, actually, it's been a genuinely kind of joyous experience discovering, you know, your ideas and your inventions and the products and the drawings and everything. I mean, are you a joyous person? <laughs> well, I always loved <laughs> Leonard Cohen, you know. Yes. I do love Leonard. And Leonard Cohen said, if I knew where songs came from, I'd go there more often. You know, and I, I always <laughs> mention this. But I love uh, melancholic music. I think there's a sort of dry to my work at times. It's a sort of like, you know how some people, you tell, you tell jokes with a straight face or that, that sort of thing. So I'm a bit of a, like a contrast in that way in that I'm very laid back person, but um, 
understated, I think. <laughs> I want my ideas to be powerful or uh, to to do something, to move people or mm. to say something or, you know, to, to surprise or delight. In a way, myself, you know, I'm sort of do it for myself. You know, why are people creative and what, you know, what is the motivation? It's a big question, motivation. And I question myself all the time. But I think what it comes down to is we live in this world when the day-to-day -day and, the, you know, the, the, the stresses or the, the sometimes boredom at times. And I use creativity to make life more interesting for myself in a way. Mm. But I also love what I would say is a visual conversation by showing my thoughts and ideas in drawing form or object form to others as a sort of visual com uh, communication and conversation. Do you put yourself under a lot of pressure? There's a quote that I found where you said, I'm always on the verge of failure. I mean, is that how you feel? <laughs> Completely. <laughs> that blank page yesterday... And it made me worry, you know, I still have the worries. Will I be able to come up with the ideas and taking risks? People talk about it's important to take risks in creativity. You hear it all the time. Mm. And what does that mean, really? Because what is the risk? You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? <laughs> but I think I do have a desire to push a little bit further. And I think... You know, if I was talking to students of design or art, or we we sort of get, well, I've come up with an idea and I'm quite happy about it. It's quite good. I quite like it. But I'd say, push yourself just mm. a little bit, just push it a little bit further. Don't stop thinking too early. I think a lot of creative, you know, if I talk to students, um, we, we, we stop the thinking a little bit early because it's a fine idea, but it's not brilliant. It's not great. And I will try to push myself a little bit further. Anyway, that, that's probably going off the tangent, maybe. But no, it's quite interesting. I, mean, <laughs> I seem to recall Ron Arad in one of his books saying that the idea is the easy bit. Is that kind of what he means, I wonder? <laughs> I remember Ron Arad, because he was... Uh, he was your you know, tutor at the Royal College, tutor, yeah, yes. which I was thinking we might come on to later, but let's get into it now. Mm. He'd come in and say, ideas are cheap. That was it. Ideas is are cheap. The, the yeah, I yeah, think that's probably right. it. Yeah, and at the time I was a bit like, what does he mean by that? Because to me, ideas were everything, you know, because <laughs> that was that was what I was trying. But, I mean, I can't speak for Rod Arad, no, obviously, no, no. you know, and, and, and his interpretation. But what I thought it was about was that you can have a good idea, but actually, you know, doing what Ron Arad does, which is take that good idea and then go through the whole process of designing it and working with a manufacturer who has limitations and restrictions, but getting through that process and getting to that end object that's in a shop, that process is incredibly difficult. And people like Ron Arad, you know, are geniuses at getting through that process. So when that's what I assumed mm. he was talking about mm. with ideas are cheap, it's, you know, there are lots of good ideas, but bringing it to life is uh, very difficult. Can we discuss your background? Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're from Sunderland. Yes. Uh, your dad owned a company called Dip and Strip, which stripped furniture, I believe. Yeah. What did your mum do? She was a secretary in hospitals and, you know, um, part-time mostly. Um. So was it a creative household? Were you busy making things the whole time? No, I I think it was perfectly normal. <laughs> but, um, I mean, my dad's very enthusiastic, very great, uh, positive person, encouraging, go for it. I remember he went to <laughs> went to school and talked to the art teacher, and and he was saying, 
Okay, you like his work, but but does he have Zippo, right? Like, does he have Zippo? What he means is like some something special, or like something extra, or something. Uh, my dad was always <laughs> just checking because he had a friend who worked at Nissan, and I could have had a job working at Nissan in Sunderland, yeah, which yeah. is the. And I said, Dad, but I want to go to art college, and uh, he, I think he was just <laughs> checking, you know, <laughs> to make sure that this was worth it. Well, I've seen you describe yourself as the third best artist in your school. <laughs> Is that true? Brendan Ferguson was apparently the best. Oh, Brendan, yeah. Well, Brendan, yes. I mean, what, he, he what's, really what's he doing now, Brendan? He's actually, uh, he's doing well in architecture. Oh, well, there you go. You know, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure my classmates would argue that point. But um, yes, I, I was good, but not, you know, I wasn't the best at all in the in the class. And, and actually looking back on the work, I was doing it at A-level. It looks like A-level art boys, sort of Salvador Dali, you know, sort of surreal. It was very sort of precise mm. and controlled. And it was just interesting how it changed in a way from that. It was something happened that flicked a switch in my mind and set me off in a different direction. What happened, I wonder? <laughs> well, I mean, so... Because you did foundation, didn't you? At, I did at the foundation Sunderland. at Sunderland mm. uh, University. And there was a tutor on there called Charlie Holmes. He was a contemporary artist, a conceptual artist. So obviously he was doing quite different work to the traditional work that I'd seen. He would just set um, creative challenges, um, creative thinking challenges to then um, communicate visually. The challenges he set really opened a door in my mind I realised I could think of ideas and communicate them through drawing, photography, illustration, or... Well, at that time, there wasn't any making. It was through 2D. So he opened a door that, in my mind, that if he wasn't there and he didn't challenge us on these creative challenges, like, for example, draw a line but give it a personality. And that was... And I found this in my dad's attic recently, what I did. So I drew, like, a... I drew a, a line and it's coming from left to right and it goes along and then it gets thicker and thicker and then it goes back down to a thin line and continues. And that was the line that took a deep breath. And then there was a line that went along and had a little up and then a down and then straight along. That was the line that coughed. I think that example of taking a very normal line and turning it into something that made someone smile or you know think... If you can do that with a line, you could do it with anything. Mm. And it really, that opened up the door in my mind. So, you know, thank you, Charlie Holmes. So Foundation was pivotal. And then you went to Edinburgh mm -hmm. to study visual communication. What kind of things were you making or drawing there? Yeah, it was visual communication. It was in the graphics uh, section. I thought I'd do graphic design because I thought it was like fine art, but you, get, you got a wage, a weekly wage. <laughs> Uh, this was my level of knowledge, you know, and um, yes, so I did that, and it was very much visual communication, that's 2D drawing or graphics, I didn't really learn many skills, but it was a very um, conceptual, ideas-based course, which suited me. Mm. Then I did a postgraduate one year, and I could do whatever I wanted, I was just at Edinburgh, at Edinburgh still, right. in that, and I basically turned some of my drawings of objects into real objects, and had a little mini exhibition. So that was my first step into making things. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. 
Because then you went off to Japan for a year. Yes. To yeah. do teach English as a foreign language. I was following a girlfriend at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did that. But that was interesting because, you know, what I find interesting about it is that I was there in Japan for a year and people would say, my goodness, that must have been so inspiring. Yeah. But I never had one creative thought in the whole year. Why was that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it really comes down to one motivation I need to be motivated to be creative, right, to think of ideas. And another thing was, you know, I was teaching at school, so there was no uh, exhibition, there was no nothing going on there. And um, and the other thing was, I was a bit culture shocked and a bit stressedish. And I think creative ideas flow best when you're relaxed, mm. focused, but relaxed. And I was sort of on the defense a little, like survival mode a little bit. And that just doesn't engender a sort of creative thinking. So did you know what you wanted to do? Because you went, as we've discussed very briefly, you went to the Royal College of Art onto the design products course. So you went from doing a graphic design course, you had this year in Japan, and then you went on to doing, well, presumably more three-dimensional objectival stuff. Why did you decide to do that? There was a documentary on the BBC about the Royal College of Art. They focused on Ron Arad's course they and there did, was an yeah. artist on that. I can't remember. I remember him doing like a, a giraffe ladder or something. Anyway, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so I could have went into a graphic design direction, um, like working for a company, but I decided... I'm going to just take my sketchbooks. So I went to the Royal College and just sent in sketchbooks of these funny ideas. And uh, yeah, they really liked them. And uh, this, I mean, I wasn't a product designer or a furniture designer, but I think, uh, you know, they thought, well, this is an interesting person with interesting ideas. It'll be interesting having him on the course. So, so that started that direction. And how did you find it? Because I was looking at your blog the other day, and you talked about it being quite difficult, I think. Well, you found it quite tough. Oh, uh, yeah. You talked about the drift earlier, and it seemed that the drift started from the Royal College. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, looking back, I mean, I did so much work at the Royal College of Art, and it's because you're given challenges, and I like getting challenges, so you're sort of, you're being fed work to do, and there's a sort of like... Uh, quite an intense uh, situation. There's lots of these very creative people, all different backgrounds doing great stuff. And, you, you know, you get sucked up in that. And there's lots of famous, not that I knew who they were at the time, <laughs> certainly when I began, but, you know, I quickly learned um, giving advice, you know, to, and, and I talk to students and students quite, you know, get caught up in this because, you know, when you're a low confidence person, a bit like I was and am to a degree, you know, I've, got, I've always had an underlying low confidence. You start to listen to other people as to what to do. And I listened a lot, which is good in many ways. But what the downside of it is you sort of start to lose your original self in a way. And it wasn't a bad thing. Um, you know, I would think, well, could I do furniture? Like, could I apply my uh, imagination into the world of furniture or ceramic or, you know, these areas? And I thought it was it's interesting. And I did do, you know, tried that and, mm. and those sort of things. But I would just say that it took me a number of years to get back to the Dominic I was before the Royal College of Art, but with the learning and experience and knowledge 
that I got at the Royal College, which is really important. I mean, it's very important. So it's a sort of a, an interesting experience, but a very long-term experience. Yeah, yeah. So you don't regret going in there? No, not at all. My goodness, it was fantastic. The, you know, Ron Arid and Daniel Charney, fantastic. You know, Gabby, uh, I was on the Platform 8, which was the uh, arty one I would describe the as. Arty one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it. But no, it was fantastic. But I just thought, due to myself and my confidence issues of like listening and wanting to please people or you know I lost it myself a little bit yeah I was going to talk to you about that because it's kind of interesting contradiction it seems to me I mean we don't know each other well but we've come across each other over the years and I've seen you speak and as I say I've spent a couple of days kind of mugging up on you and watching you on things like the TEDx talk that you did there is a kind of shyness in there, it seems to me, but also there's, you quite like a crowd. <laughs> I like the idea of having a visual communication with people. Because I've always been quite a shy person, then, you know, when I think about this from childhood, you know, shy children have to use their imagination a lot to communicate what they want <laughs> or they want, you know what? So maybe I was forced into using my imagination in visual ways or signs or, and maybe it come from that. But I do, yes, I do think that, you know, would I be creative without having someone to show the work to? As I say, when in Japan, I didn't have the audience, there was no galleries on, and I didn't have a creative thought. So I guess um, I do enjoy, yes. <laughs> so you're showing off is what, is what, we're, what, what we're saying here. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it, Grant. <laughs> oh, can we talk about the importance of, of making? Because we've, we've also talked about the drawing, but this notion of thinking through making has become incredibly important to your work, I think. Yes, well, actually, the thinking through making, that was something I learned at the Royal College. And the idea of finding ideas through materials or machines that make things like the vacuum former and thinking what could you do with that rather than just being in a sketchbook with a blank sheet of paper there's only so far you can get in creativity just on paper i think it's a very good way to just doodle and draw but actually thinking through making is probably a more healthy way i think it's a it's it's a more it's a definitely i think you can find more surprises through that thinking through making approach rather than with a sketchbook, mm. which sort of is a linear connection of thoughts and ideas as you're drawing them down. And you might hit on surprising things, but with materials, um, experimentation through materials can lead to surprises that you could never have imagined until you saw them. The only thing is you've got to have an eye to look out for those surprises because millions of people or thousands of people would be playing with a certain material and the opportunity to spot the unusual thing or the to make a connection with another material or, or to do something with it you've got to have like a third eye looking for that and many people will miss it mm. i think mm. talk about using unusual materials as i said in the intro the first time I came across your work was a kind of the war bowl which became this kind of cult object made of plastic toy soldiers can you tell us a bit about that in the first instance? How did you decide you were going to make this bowl? It came from a challenge to come up with a new material. That's what the starting block was. I was experimenting with materials 
It's a it's a sort of combination of multiple things coming at the same time. I was doing a lot of experimentation in my kitchen. I mean, the Iraq War it was of of that time, in, right? In that time, so that was on the news a lot. So it's a multiple things happening at the same time. But in terms of the material uh, experimentation. I got some toy soldiers and I put them under the grill in the kitchen. And then... As you do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did a lot. You did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so putting it in the under the grill and then it, it um, when it cooled down, it was a sheet. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I've created a material that is visually interesting. It's got some something in it and I can tell a story within the material. And then what can you do with that? Well, the reason why I did a ball is that to me, a ball is a sort of neutral place it's like a canvas in the in the object world a ball can be you know be like that and so it really just allowed me to put the focus on the soldiers mm. and then i chose different wars and such on but yeah yeah so each bowl represented a, a particular yeah. conflict yes and I, th I think i'm right in saying it was manufactured by torsten van elton uh, it did later, yes. Um, I did initially and then Torsten took it yeah. on. Yeah. So you could buy it in a shop, in other words. Yes, it was sold in shops. In terms of what you think of as conventional product design, that's about as conventional, traditional as your work became, really, I think. Uh, was it just chance that you fell into the space that you fell into? You weren't tempted to go down a more traditional route and create, albeit quirky, but products. After the Royal College, I had a little partnership with a friend, the Steve Mosley. Mosley. Wilcox, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we did do tables, vases, plates, because basically we approached a famous music photographer called Mick Rock. You should know Mick yeah, Rock. Yeah, I should know Mick Rock. I'm sure I do <laughs> know Mick name. Rock, but I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah, well, he took um, tra the Transformer photograph of oh, okay. Lou Reed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blondie, oh, I do know Mick Rock. Yes, yes, Queen, yes, yes. the faces... Um, Yes, so he was famous, so we have just approached him to take inspiration from his work and make them into objects. And so we did do an edition there, and then Paul Smith took them on as a limited edition, so we could have gone, but then we, we split up, and we both went our separate ways, mm. and that's when I sort of drifted for a few years and then found myself. Yeah, but finding yourself, I mean, that's not an easy path to tread commercially in terms of making mm. a career or a living. Did these kind of things pop into your mind as you decided <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm going to do? How did I survive? I'm trying, yeah. I, I always look back and think, how did I survive? I knew a bit of design, you know, I didn't. I knew a bit of web design and that sort of thing. And you could do a little bit of a website every now and again. I hardly spent any money. I scraped by. Yeah. You can in some ways, you know. But was there a plan? You know, did you think this is ultimately how I'm going to make a career out of this? Or did it all just kind of fall into place there was absolutely no plan and there still isn't a plan that is a funny thing i think the plan was simply just what should i make today eventually when i found the motivation mm. again to be creative was um what could i make i've got this blog i can do anything i'll make this out of this material i'll take this photograph i'll do this video i'll do this drawing and uh, i'll just show it and just purely for the joy of um of doing it what will be will be <laughs> well you got discovered or picked up by various brands over the yeah. years and you did the wonderful piece with kellogg's with the hat with the crane that <laughs> you kind of maneuver to pull yeah. out your cereal from the packet and put it into a bowl and milk comes out of the hat with a, a stained glass car driverless stained glass car with mini you worked with goodyear tires didn't you, you created a sledge that you could also sunbathe on, I think I'm right in oh, saying. Yes, Is that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I do remember. These corporate gigs, 
are they as much fun? Is there constraint? And if there is, do you enjoy the constraint of those corporate jobs? Yeah, it's funny because it worked very well, I'd say, because the people at the brands were very happy for me to do whatever I wanted to do because they want me to be me. You know, they don't want me to just design what they want to design. And there's definitely a freedom there. And there's a decent budget. And all they do really is give me a subject matter. So Kellogg's was come up with inventions to make breakfast time more fun or interesting for children. The car, which was with Dazeen and Mini, was design the future of mobility. I like these challenges. It's sort of, you know, rather than me hunting around for creative things, I like just using creativity as a torch. Tell me what area you want me to look at and I'll find just as much enjoyment thinking about how can I make cars more interesting. Well, should we talk a bit about the car? Because I very much like the car. And as you say, it was a project with DZ and Mini. And it was a driverless car that you could sleep in that was made out of stained glass. How did you arrive at that as your solution for the future of transport? I had three ideas for this exhibition. And um, that was the one that I really wanted to do because it was the most ambitious one. And I felt a bit scared. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, it's sort of bonkers, making a car out of stained glass. I mean, you know, um, again, it's a combination of different thoughts, thinking about future mobility. Well, driverless cars had started to be talked about. So that was that, there was a subject. And I thought about that, and it's sort of like a fictional story writer thinking about the future. Actually, there's a website, taxirobot.co.uk, um, that I created, which I don't know what anyone knows about. That's why I mentioned. But it's a fictional website where, for the future, where you can pick the size of your driverless car. So it's got a base of two-person, three-person, ten-person. Then you pick the interior. Well, it could be a, a restaurant, a dining car, a, a, an office, a bed. And then you pick your cover and so it sort of fitted into this idea of the future and then you order your taxi Mm. and it comes to pick you up right yeah that's it and um so this was the idea and i thought it's sort of bonkers but there's a logic there so i think there's always got to be some sort of logic in whatever i do it's sort of what having one foot in slightly absurd but is it Mm. the question about that driverless car it becomes more and more real as the time goes on. <laughs> and also, you set it in 2059, right, which was yes. the centenary of the original Mini. Yeah, so that gave me a target date. Yeah. So I'm sort of narrowing it down in my mind as to where my idea is going. And then, so the idea is it's a driverless car with a, just a bed inside. That's it, just a bed. And you would tell the car where you want to go and the car would take you there. The idea was in 2059, I was proposing that there'll be roads which will be super safe. The cars will not crash into each other. The roads will be observing the cars. There'll be no accidents. If there are no accidents, then the the materials that car manufacturers choose to make their cars could be anything. In fact, they could be a stained glass and you could just have a bed with no seat belts because there are no crashes. So I sort of like pushing the idea to the farthest I could think of at the time and going for it. So I went down to a local um, stained glass workshop in Camden, Leaden Light, and um, I just said, I've got this idea. 
you know, do you think it's possible? And then there was a lady um, listening and she said, why don't you come to the um, workshop and do a workshop? And I did a five-day workshop in how to make stained glass. And then it continued and it took about, I mean, the whole thing took about three months. And I worked with um, Middlesex University Product Design because they like collaborating with, you know, designers. And they worked on the the manufacture of the base and right, the structure. The frame, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they need a big CNC and they mm. worked on that. And I was doing the, the stained glass with... Was it important you made it yourself in terms of the stained glass? Um, there are lots of designers who would have just drawn it and then hand it over to somebody to fabricate, right? Mm. Um, it would never have happened if I didn't make it. <laughs> it the, that, that's the thing of working by yourself a lot. There's an upside and downside. The upside is you're in control and you can get it done. I could work through the night for three or four nights in a row if it, but I can't ask anyone else to do that, you know. And so um, it, it's a case of getting it done. Also, it was interesting to learn a, a skill. And again, looking at stained glass, that car has been on the front covers of Stained Glass Weekly or Monthly, you know. So I've entered into it's the stained, stained glass world. But I'm not a stained glass maker. It's interesting. And the shoes were, you know, in the shoe world. And it's sort of interesting how you can come at traditional areas from an outsider's perspective, but just applying some creative thinking and rethinking it. Mm. When you're an expert of something either a furniture maker or a ceramicist or a stained glass maker, one of the challenges is um, you get surrounded by the same things a lot. And sometimes you need to extract yourself to look from a different perspective. And I suppose that's my general approach because I'm not an expert in you know anything really. Mm. Time is a thread that runs through your work quite regularly, I think. You did these gorgeous pieces where you had tiny figures, I think in clay, that went round on the arms of a watch. Very small piece of artwork, really. And you've also done these trials. You've raced a 3D printer to create a model version of the Duomo in Milan. And you did a project where you had to create something new every day for 30 days. What is it about time? Well, I mean, I guess in the past I've always felt that time is slipping away and have, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? And it's a motivation to do something. And, uh, you know, we only get a short amount of time. So I don't know what it is about time, but I think it, yeah, I don't know, Grant. I have no answer to that one. <laughs> Fair enough. You seem to have become a bit of a publishing phenomenon this year as well. There's no end to this. The Little Inventors Handbook came out in 2018. Uh, this was followed by Little Inventors Go Green this year, and there'll be Little Inventors in Space later in the year. Let's talk about Little Inventors. How did that start? Well, it was a commission in um, Sunderland. Now, I'm from Sunderland. Mm. I hadn't actually returned to Sunderland since I left the foundation course, you know. But it was a commission, and the commission was to reach at least 200 people uh, in the community doing something creative, uh, you know, some creative activity. But prior to that, I'd had a little idea and uh, I was invited to, uh, I think I was I was on the top of the BT Tower and I was a representative of the National Inventors Day, I was asked. And there was a group uh, called Steamco, who, uh, you know, were a creative uh, children's organisation. And I was invited along to an event and the guy, Nick Corson, said, there's a hundred children coming in this room. Do you want to do a little activity? And so I quickly 
put some of my drawings on the wall as inspiration. And then I drew a picture frame with my invention on some A4 sheets. And then some children came up to this desk and I said, do you like these ideas? And said, yeah, do, do you want to be an inventor? And they said, yeah. And they sat down. You know, it's only about 20 over the course of an hour or so. And um, a little boy drew uh, a camera embedded in a tooth. And when you smile, it takes your photograph. And a girl who was 11 drew a half-sleeping pill tablet that um, sends the left side of your face asleep while the other side can keep on working. <laughs> I thought this sounds, this is like a Central St. Martin's research project, designed research project. I could see it in the, you know, the pill in the middle of the, of the big uh, <laughs> acrylic box. And I think that gave me the idea, which I then proposed for the commission and I got the commission. So it started in Sunderland. Right. Over the years, what was this, 2015, 16, this started? Mm, yes. I mean, they've come up, as you've suggested, with some glorious ideas. It's this concept of play, which seems so important. And it seems important in your work as well, I think. Yes. I think most designers and artists, they seem to be able to retain a sense of play where other people in other professions maybe do not. Yes. I always think that the great designers like Ron Arad, Thomas Heatherwick, these people, have this ability to maintain a freedom of imagination, but at the same time have a very practical, logical side. And it's the combination of those two together at the same time that you, you need to be that, you mm. know, that type of person. Mm. Continuing along that line, I mean, it's one thing fostering creativity in children. I mean, the key is, I guess, is retaining it. And I wonder how you, do you have thoughts about that, how you do that? Yes, so, I mean, as we know, children are very playful already in their imagination and they go with ideas while as adults we become more sensible and logical and that well that's a silly idea or that couldn't work that's not possible that would cost too much and all of that stuff and that kills off the flight of ideas so I'm very keen to encourage people who want to be creative to resist that practical logical thinking a little bit a little bit longer mm. and to let your ideas fly a little bit longer and children do this naturally so i do have an affinity with the children <laughs> and um and yes so i mean really the uh, the idea of little inventors to me it wasn't a children's project it was an idea of that well we could find some really interesting ideas if we took seriously some of these children's ideas. Well, and, and you did, didn't you? I mean, you, you found one child came up with a high-five machine. <laughs> yes. Which, which, is, which is what? Yes, which is, well, it was Oliver. He actually went to my primary school, coincidentally, in Sunderland, and he said, you know, when he, when he does something good, but there's no one around, he's got no one to do a high-five with. So he invented, he did a drawing of a high-five machine. You press a button, it does a high-five. And I talked with a local fab lab in Sunderland, and they made it real. Pressed a button, scanned his hand in, and there he was, pressing the button and doing a high-five with himself. <laughs> Brilliant. And that got taken into the uh, V&A's permanent uh, well, collection. You've got five, apparently, five Little Inventors yeah. products yeah. in the V&A permanent collection. Yes. Which yeah. is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the... That speaks highly of the V&A as well, I have to say as well. I think. I think <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they're very uh, open to, to, to ideas. And uh, I think, you know, they really liked... It was called the Inventors Project when I first did it in Sunderland. Yes. Then I um, it turned it into uh, Little Inventors. They were very supportive of that and uh, wanted to celebrate that. And obviously, in the, they really loved the, the children's ideas. And there's such a variety of things. I mean, the other ones that spring to mind 
are the umbrella for ladybirds, which has been used quite a bit, which is this beautiful, delicate glass object so ladybirds can hide under when it's raining, right? Yes, that's it. It's a delightful idea. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's the type of ideas or these children's ideas and the drawings um, can be very simple drawings. And so you have to work a little bit hard t- to pay attention, mm. you know, to, because normally, you know, as adults, we go, oh, that's nice. And then parents might put it on the fridge door. Well, this is sort of going beyond the fridge door. This is taking those ideas and looking more seriously at them and taking them seriously. So the drawing of the ladybird umbrella, I then took that to Sunderland and the National Glass Centre in Sunderland. And there's a guy working there, Norman, who makes glass pieces. And he brought that to life by making it into a real, a very beautiful, delicate object. And um, Paola Antonelli showed it in her Broken Nature exhibition. Oh, the Triennale Yes, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And my favourite, because some of them tackle some quite deep issues as well. Not that ladybirds getting wet isn't deep, I yeah. hasten to add. But yeah, my favourite one is, is this, um, it's almost like a, a platform where a whole town can be lifted above mm-hmm. a war zone, which I think is kind of rather poetically beautiful yeah. as well, actually. I give talks and I always have to stop when I start talking about that because mm. I get emotional. <laughs> I wish I wouldn't, but I do. Um, so yes, it was. A, it's a drawing. It lifts your house out of a war zone on wheels, and the wheels take you out of the war zone. And it's got an invisibility blanket. There's a, a person called Erin uh, Dixon, uh, architectural maker. Um, she brought that to life in it with a beautiful model. Mm. And we got the dome made at the glass centre, really big dome. And and yeah, that got taken into the v So, the, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Um, the imagination is uh, from the bonkers to the poetic and the thought-provoking. And of course, children watch the news and they take it all in. One of the things that intrigues me about it is that you kind of think that the cliche now is that all kids are on smartphones from the age of whatever or tablets and... But they're making, in the most part, as far as I can work out, physical things. They're drawing things that would become objects rather than apps. I mean, is that your influence or is, is that, is that what, how kids think? <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, so we sometimes get app ideas. Do we right. do, yeah. When you ask thousands of children, which we do, you know, I don't know how... There's about 13,000 children's drawings on the website now that have been uploaded but those are the people who've took the time to upload because since you started in Sunderland it's gone right around the world right yeah that's it yeah so it's on the website littleinventors.org get the plug in for that but (laughs) yeah yeah, and um, it's gone around the world so it was in China Uh, there was China Little Inventors Middle East Italy we've done the Italian translation of the books and uh, yeah it's just grown and grown because I think it's a simple idea in many ways taking children's ideas seriously, connecting them with experts. It's a collaboration project, the minds of children and the skills of experts. But also there's the exhibition and the, it brings in the public and we get so many of the parents or, you know, whoever visits being inspired in a way to think creatively. For me, it wasn't a ch- it isn't a children's project. It's a project about imagination and creativity mm. that children are involved in and also adults. Mm. But how do you get it onto the curriculums, I wonder? There's been a lot of controversy in schools mm-hmm. in this country about STEM, which is uh, science, technology, engineering, maths, and that the emphasis on that with lots of people kind of saying we need to be thinking in terms of STEAM, which I guess STEAM companies where this started. So I wonder how one goes about making sure that these kind of ideas are 
embedded in schools across the country? It's a challenge. There is a pressure. I mean, different governments have different views, and uh, there's, but there's a definite pressure on reading and mathematics. Mm. And the problem is that there's literally less and less time for the teachers to do creative subjects. You can say, well, it's not necessarily about the arts being shrunk. It's they're being pushed out and there's no time. And so I do, you know, go into schools, the primary schools, showing my invention ideas and stuff. And you'll hear like a little child say to the teacher, Miss, can, can we do more of this stuff? You know, there's not enough space for free thinking. It's all controlled because mm. there's time is, there's not much time. The teacher's got to fit in so much. No one says to the children, not enough anyway, so what idea have you got? They're feeding the information and the knowledge, but creativity is what you do with that knowledge. Creativity brings to life and makes use of knowledge. And just having the knowledge is not enough. And the thing about creativity is, as I say, it gradually can fade away in people's minds as we grow older if we don't use it if we aren't challenged to think creatively, to solve a problem, to come up with an idea. And that is the problem for many schools. Not all. There are some brilliant schools. And the teachers are brilliant. It's not them. It's the pressures of the system that is edging out creativity. And it's a shame because children, if we can just get them through that school, Without doubt, there'll be far more innovative, creative people coming out of school and, and affecting society, solving the problems. I mean, the world's got so many problems, we need a lot more creative thinkers. And so hopefully, you know, organisations like Little Inventors, there's lots of people working very hard to try and encourage and inspire children. There does seem to have been a disconnect in government, particularly over the last decade, where I go to lots of um, governmental type launches and you see the ministers of state for culture and business talking about the importance of design and creativity to the British economy. But it doesn't seem to translate into education where they're obsessed with other subjects and um, art seems to have got pushed out completely. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We will. It's a strange because I have met with politicians now because, you know, you got you have like a, the exhibitions, that, mm. you know. Didn't you talk at the UN? Yes, I talked uh, in, in New York and Geneva now. <laughs> yeah. I know. You're yes. very privileged to talking I, to me now. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yes, I, these things happen. But it's funny because I've just, I'm just, you know, come up with ideas and stuff, but... Uh, then you, you get invited to these things where people look to you to like, what should we do? And that sort of thing. And you think, oh, well, and then I've got to be serious and I've got to think about it. And then I suppose that's why I start to think about what is creativity? How can you become more creative? You know, like I'd never used to write things down in order to talk about it um, because I didn't have to. Well, actually, interestingly, the books talk a bit about well, presumably your process of how to be creative. Well, yes, well, it's a team thing at Little mm. Inventors. You know, we've got Catherine Mengarden that does the writing and I do the drawing side of things. And it's a collaboration team effort. What I like about the books is that, well, it's physical. It's not on the internet. We've got the internet and mm. that's great. And that allows us to spread the word as far as we can. But the books are something you can pick up and they are activity books, so it's sort of interactive, so the children can interact. But we can, you know, tell the story of how you find ideas, observe the world, look around, how you can, playful ideas, celebrating the bonkers, 
It doesn't all have to be serious straight away, but you can be a problem solver, you know, or you can be more on the artistic side, just creating things for delight, which is uh, what I'm, I was interested in, <laughs> the, the, the bonkers. And what yeah. about you, Dominic? What's the future hold? We're in this new world. Presumably there's lots of scope for new thinking. Yes, um, I think um, it's still an unknown because I have no plans. And if I did have a plan, it would go wrong. <laughs> I think um, it's been an interesting process. Certainly with the Little Inventors has become more practical thinking because it's an organization, you have to be like that. And so I'm hoping, you know, I can find more time to be free in my mind to think of ideas and share them, I guess, and, and get more back into that rhythm. I think I've got a lot more ideas in there. I've just got to search my mind to find them and bring them to life. And uh, yeah, but I enjoy it. I enjoy creativity. I mean, I, I wouldn't know what else to do. That's the problem, Grant. I've got no, nothing else to do. And I, and I love it. And, uh, that, and that's why I want to keep on doing it. Very good. Dominic, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Little Inventors Go Green and Little Inventors in Space are both published by Collins. To discover more about Dominic's work, go to dominicwilcox.com. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. If you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.